Welcome back to a new episode of the Oxford Policy Pod. My name is Chirag Shah, a Master of Public Policy candidate at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Today, we're looking at the issue of global biodiversity conservation and how we're going to finance the protection of our critical natural life supporting systems. We're fortunate to have two guests today to discuss this issue. The first is Anna Ducrow, a researcher and nature economist at the International Institute for Environment and Development, or IIED, in the Shaping Sustainable Markets team. Prior to joining IIED, she studied and worked as a researcher in Canada, looking at the blue economy. Our second guest is Andreas Hansen, a Senior Policy Advisor for Ocean and Conservation Finance at the Nature Conservancy. He provides government relations advice for the Nature Conservancy's Blue Bond Strategy and coordinates its global ocean policy work. Prior to joining the Nature Conservancy, he worked as a civil servant in the UK government, including on improving air quality and marine environmental policy. Thank you for joining us, Anna and Andreas. Um, First of all, can you uh, both briefly introduce yourself and your organisation? What are the problems you are trying to solve and why are they important? Uh, Perhaps, Anna, if you want to go first. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Shirag. Um, So, as mentioned, my name is Anna Ducro and I'm a researcher at IIED in the Shaping Sustainable Markets Group. Um, where we look at creating incentives for sustainable economies. Um, And in terms of the work we do, it's a wide range of topics from debt for nature and climate swaps to biodiversity credits, which we also call nature certificates these days. Um, And I guess the wider mission within our team is to ensure not only that there is a steady stream of reliable finance for biodiversity, but also that the finance is reaching the local level that's a big thing that we work on within IID. It's called our, um, money, where, money Where It Matters, but you can call it a variety of different names. Um, and pretty much it's based on the fact that um, local communities and Indigenous peoples are the most effective stewards of biodiversity. Um, and they also are inter- intrinsically connected to these systems in terms of their livelihoods, in terms of their culture and their values. So our angle is really about how we can get money where it matters to the local communities. Great, I'll jump jump in next. It's really great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I'm Andreas Hansen, Senior Policy Advisor for Ocean and Conservation Finance at the Nature Conservancy, or TNC, as I'll be referring to it in the in the rest of the program. And TNC is an organization that's been around from 1951. We work all across the world in over 70 countries and territories. And our mission is really to create a future where nature and people thrive. And we do that through a whole host of different approaches. But the one we'll focus in on today is how we work with a whole host of partners to pilot, implement and scale innovative finance solutions to bridge the biodiversity financing gap, which is one of the key ways in which we seek to tackle the biodiversity crisis and halt and reverse nature loss in the next decade. Um, amazing. Um, so Andreas, you, you and Anna, uh, you've both uh, mentioned biodiversity finance. Um, can you briefly explain to the listeners what that is and why do we need it? So maybe I'll 
start and and Anna can correct and add. Um, I think of biodiversity finance as pretty much all of the funding sources that are needed to transition us to a nature positive future. The investments from the public sector, from the private sector, the redirection of financial flows that already exist, fiscal incentives, fiscal policies, taxation, pretty much everything that can be used to finance a transition to a nature positive future. That's what I think about as biodiversity financing. And it's important to think about it as that holistic set of financing flows because no one single flow will deal with the total biodiversity financing gap. And maybe we can back, come back to that a little bit. We did some really interesting work with the Paulson Institute as well as the Cornell Atkinson Center for Sustainability ahead of the Convention on Biological Diversity uh, COP15 to assess what that gap is. We landed at a figure of 700 billion US dollars a year up until 2030 to really halt and reverse biodiversity loss. And that sounds like a lot, but in many ways it actually isn't. It's around 1% of global GDP. That's as much as the world spends on soft drinks or cigarettes a year. And when you think about the fact that this is necessary to protect the life support systems that we all depend on, I think that number becomes a whole lot more manageable to think about. Thanks, Andreas. Um, Anna, do you have a different conception of biodiversity finance um, and the kind of the need for it? Um, no, I would conceptualize it in the same way. That was a great answer, Andreas. Thanks for going first on that question. Um, but I think just one thing to add is that when we're thinking about biodiversity finance, it's important to not think of it in isolation from other sorts of financing, for example, development finance or climate finance, um, all of these challenges that do require some sort of action outside of the market um, are usually intrinsically interlinked. So I think that it's important to also frame them in the wider um, context. Amazing. And um, Andres, uh, you mentioned uh, another concept that uh, it might be helpful to unpack for the listeners, and that's nature positive. Can you can you briefly describe what 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 do you mean when you when you say nature positive? So what we think about as nature positive is essentially a different state from the one we're in now, which is I guess nature negative. Currently, the status quo, the way we run our economies, how our societies work, is depleting nature. And so when we talk about nature positive, it is having a society and economy that provides for the needs of people without depleting nature. So we think about how we can produce food in a way that actually maintains and regenerates both the ocean and our land. We think about how maybe some of the infrastructure we need to protect ourselves from increasing uh, intense weather events can actually also be nature-based. It can be about restoring wetlands to add as flood defenses. It can be about reintroducing vegetation and forests in areas that are prone to erosion and those kind of things. So really thinking about how we can, you know, provide for a good life for people, but in a way that doesn't deplete the life support systems that we all depend on. Great. And um, uh, another thing you mentioned, Andreas, is uh, COP15. 
uh, or the, the UN Biodiversity Summit last year. Um, Anna, can you tell tell us what what is the what is COP fifteen? Uh, did you in, did you attend, and uh, why why was it important? Yeah, good question. I attended COP fifteen in Montreal. Um, as a Canadian, it was nice to be having a conference like that in my home country. Um, but yeah, from it was my first COP, so kind of uh, it was a lot of kind of getting around the scale of the event and so I think that it's a really important event where everyone can come together on biodiversity. I think this year was especially interesting because um, well compared to the climate cops the indigenous peoples and local communities usually have a really large presence at biodiversity cops so that was great to see um, in action as well as well as there's um, a lot of youth voices at the biodiversity cops but I think what I um, noticed as a turning point for this COP is that there was a lot more private sector engagement at COP15 and the private sector was really showing up looking for tools that they could invest in, that they could engage with, that they could research around on how they can help um, fund the biodiversity finance gap that Andres was mentioning earlier. I couldn't actually agree more with that statement. It was quite striking to see the private sector pushing countries on certain issues. So we ended up with a target, for instance, that committed countries to legal and regulatory measures to ensure that big businesses and financial institutions disclose their biodiversity impacts and dependencies. And in many ways, that was pushed by quite a forward-leaning coalition of business interests at, at the COP, and that was heartening to see. Of course, a lot more needs to happen. These things need to actually be put into into action, but compared to previous COPs, as Anna mentioned there, that was quite quite the change and a really positive one at that. Um, and just just to to um, make it clear for our listeners, so the the COP fifteen, the the biodiversity summit, um, differs from the the climate COPs, um, but it is a um, it is a kind of a meeting that occurs under the the, the kind of UN global framework for biodiversity is is that or the con, con, convention on um, biodiversity is that a fair summary? Yes, I think so. There's there's a whole host of well, there's three conventions called the Rio conventions that deal with different aspects. So you've got the UNFCCC that deals with climate change, and that has its set of decision making conference of the parties COPs. Then you've got the convention of biological diversity who deals with biodiversity and has its own COPs and then you've also got the convention to combat desertification which again has a series of COPs. Of course as Anna mentioned previously when we were talking about financing these are all related and again some of the some of the progress we've seen is more explicit cross references between the COPs and between for instance the Paris framework and the new global biodiversity framework, which is really important because if you try to tackle these problems in isolation, you can go down a route of unintended consequences and actually, you know, land on solutions that are damaging in one area. So nature-based solutions are fantastic, but they need to not be kind of monoculture nature-based solutions. We need to be looking at native plants and species and, and things that will actually enhance 
nature when we uh, look at nature-based solutions for carbon sequestration. Fantastic. And uh, you, so you mentioned the Global Biodiversity Framework. Um, can you uh, briefly explain, um, Andreas, what that is and what, what was agreed under the framework? Absolutely. So the framework is essentially setting goals and targets um, for the next decade and also some up to 2050. And in many ways, you can see it as a parallel to the Paris Agreement, but for biodiversity. Um, and it's essentially setting yeah, targets for the world, for what they want to achieve, for what we want to achieve for nature. There were quite a few targets. I won't be running through all of them, but some of the really key ones were a commitment to protect and conserve 30% of global ocean, land, and freshwater. We were really pleased to see the inclusion of freshwater in that. Um, that was something that came in quite late, but important to recognize that ecosystem. We also had an important target on the sustainable management of areas under fisheries, agriculture, and aquaculture and forestry use which is a very key companion target to the 30% protection one, because we also need to manage uh, things sustainably. Um, I already mentioned the one around um, the um, legal and regulatory measures related to businesses and, and biodiversity impacts and dependencies. There was also an important um, target around the reduction of harmful subsidies by 500 US 500 billion US dollars a year by 2030. Um, I'll stop there. Um, I think there's just under 20 in total, so there's quite, quite a few. Um, but the top line, I think, is that this is essentially nature's Paris Agreement, and the key timeline is changing things quite substantially by 2030. Great. And uh, Anna, was there any targets? Um kind of specific to biodiversity finance? Yeah, good question. So there's target 19 on resource mobilization, um, which is, um, it's, it sets out in, in a few ways to mobilize the resources necessary for all of the other targets. So, I mean, I'm probably biased because I work on biodiversity finance, but to me that is a key part of the global biodiversity framework um, because I mean, to be frank, setting out all these targets is great, and it's great that everyone got around the table, but if there's no way to finance them, then um, they're going to be quite hard to achieve. So um, target 19 on resource mobilization will be key. And, and is that target, um, does that reach the scale of the, the gap that uh, Andreas alluded to earlier? The, is it the $700 billion to 2030? Um needed to hold biodiversity loss? I think, Andreas, you might want to correct me, but I, I'm understanding from the wording of the target that it's mobilizing $200 billion per year um, from now until 2030. Or, sorry, by 2030, we're mobilizing $200 billion per year. Yes. So I think we have definitely gotten agreements that are taking us an important step towards closing the financing gap. And there's both target 19 that Anna mentioned, which is increasing funds that go to biodiversity, and that includes tripling official uh, development assistance to 30 
billion US dollars a year, as well as increasing total spend on biodiversity from all sources to 200 uh, billion US dollars by 2030. There's companion targets around the reduction of harmful subsidies by 500 billion US dollars by 2030. And this is an important part of our 700 billion a year figure, because actually you can get to almost half of that figure by redirecting currently harmful subsidies and financial flows into nature positive areas. And so, you know, you don't actually need to have 700 billion US dollars of new funding and additional funding, quite a lot of it can be achieved again, and this is important in terms of the feasibility of this number, by making sure that money we spend doesn't actively harm nature. And as Anna mentioned, by also looking at funding that goes to climate, to development, to other areas, not having a detrimental impact on nature. So are we 100% there? No, probably not. Are we a really good step forward? Yes. And the agreement in Montreal also included a resource um, mobilization framework, which will act as a ramp up mechanism over the next few years, where you know this question will no doubt be revisited. It was one of the most discussed aspects of, of the framework, and Anna's completely right. Um, it's one of the main enabling conditions for a successful um, for a successful framework. So think really promising start and we will as always need to continue working on it. Amazing. Um, so perhaps we might move on to some of the, the financing mechanisms that um, are currently uh, available and being used to um, deploy and, and mobilize um, that, that level of financing. Um, so Anna, um, I've heard about this mechanism called debt for climate and nature swaps. Can you please tell our listeners what these debt for climate and nature swaps are, uh, how they contribute to these, uh, to both the, the biodiversity financing target, but also perhaps um, the climate financing target from the Paris Agreement, and um, provide a brief overview of the work um, IIED has been doing um, on these swaps? Yeah, for sure. Good, good question to start off with. Um, so pretty much to set the scene on the crises that we're facing, we um, at, at IID, we call it the triple crises of debt, nature loss, and climate change. So what we're seeing is that countries are um, experiencing increasing levels of debt, even so, even more so in the past couple of years with the pandemic, the crisis in Ukraine um, and the related food and energy crisis, crisis, crises, I should say. Um, so what one solution that could um, help to ease the triple crises that we identified are debt for nature and climate swaps. So in this, through, through this mechanism, a country that is highly indebted as well as facing um, increasing impacts to of climate change and because of their debt they're unable to invest in mitigating action so for example because the country is so indebted they're um, unable to switch their energy system from a coal-based system to a renewable energy um, renewable energy services 
So the way a debt for nature and climate swap works is that the indebted country, or so, sorry, the creditor will forgive or reconstruct the debt that they hold of an indebted country. And then the debtor country in turn will set a series of key performance indicators um, that they have to achieve with the money that they raise, with the fiscal space that they gained from the debt restructuring. Um, and one important distinction that we, that debt for nature swaps kind of, I would say it's consensus, it could, um, and one thing that we argue for at IID is that once the KPIs are reached, then the debtor country can do what they like with the increased fiscal space. Um, so in doing so, that the, the debt is less, is less um, conditional. Um, in terms of the work that IID is working on, um, we cover a, a, wide, a wide range of things. Um, we work with um, research institutes in the debtor countries on how they can set up the key performance indicators so that it supports the debt, so that the debt for nature swap supports their local economies. Um, we often look at debt for nature swaps with a gender lens and see how they can be leveraged to increase women's rights, women's access to livelihoods. Um, and in general, our work is, well, I guess you could frame it as research and advocacy. And yeah, so in terms of IID's contributions for to um, the debt for climate and nature swap work, um, while we are research institutes, so our contributions are based around research. One thing that we um, look to do, it's kind of, I could say under three pillars. So the first is, um, lessons learned. So we look at the nature swaps that have already taken place um, and we kind of pick up some lessons and some common challenges that they faced across the different different deals. And in doing so, we also look at some of the reconstruction that occurred, I believe it was in the 80s around poverty, poverty reduction. Um, so just kind of taking a wide lens on debt restructuring. Um, and then we also work on project um, implementation. So we, we, we countries that are interested in engaging in a debt for climate um, and nature swap will help them in, in terms of setting key performance indicators that um, we that they think will help um, support their local economies and their their local. Um, people. And in doing so, um, we often try to take a gender lens and um, make sure that the performance indicators are also benefiting um, the livelihoods of women. Um, and then I guess the, the third pillar you could kind of call it is advocacy. So this is more of a more work that's a bit less tangible, but we do kind of speak about the climate and nature swaps, advocate um, based on our lessons learned about how this schemes can be improved. Um, we work with with MDBs uh, and um, other financing institutions on how they can be reformed and how they can be scaled up. Um, great. Thanks, Anna. Um, so Andreas, um, the Nature Conservancy has been at the forefront of um, applying debt for climate and nature swaps in the real world. 
Um, can you please describe some of these recent deals? Um, the countries, the amount of, the amount of debt, uh, re uh, relief and nature conserved, and what was the role of um, the Nature Conservancy in making these happen? Sure. And I think we think about these, or we call them, we tend to call them blue bonds for, for ocean conservation. That's where we had our entry point. We really focused on on projects that were acting in the in the ocean space. And these come on the back of, I guess, the first generation of, of debt for nature swaps that Anna mentioned there, which are now a few decades back and predominantly were about sovereign to sovereign debt relief. So a creditor country would give debt relief um, if certain KPIs were then being met by, by the country who got some fiscal space. And in our approach now, we are looking at targeting commercial debt as part of, of this, this solution. And what we're trying to do is really to contribute to plugging that biodiversity financing gap and seeing this as one of the many solutions that, that is necessary to do so in the context of the triple crisis that Anna mentioned earlier, where a lot of countries that are most vulnerable to climate and biodiversity impacts also are highly indebted and therefore sometimes lack the fiscal space to take the, the actions that would benefit their people and communities the most. Um, within our Blue Bonds projects, they tend to be a partnership between TNC and governments who really want to champion ocean conservation and, and sustainable use. And there are three pillars to these projects. One is a set of conservation commitments and planning to implement those. The second one is the debt conversion financing piece, where essentially what we do is replacing existing debt burden with a lighter debt burden. And we do that through a range of mechanisms depending on the national context of that country. But essentially what happens is that you replace some quite heavy debt with some lighter debt, you create savings and fiscal space, which are then channeled into conservation. And the third pillar is the creation of a conservation fund, which is essentially a body that will receive those funding flows and manage them and direct them to different uses. And to date, we've deployed that mechanism in three countries with the government of Seychelles, with Belize and Barbados. And maybe I'll talk a little bit more about Belize specifically. That was um, a project where Belize wanted to really take steps forward in terms of ocean conservation. So as part of their conservation commitments, Belize committed to protecting 30% of its ocean and getting there through uh, a participatory inclusive science-based marine spatial planning process, which really looks at what are the different uses for the ocean? Where should some of these protections go? How can they be done in a way that is in line with what local communities need and want and the other uses of the ocean? Then to support the implementation of those commitments, TNC worked with, with third partners to refinance around 550 million US dollars of commercial debt and freeing up around 170 to 180 million US dollars over the next 20 years. And that's broken down into an annual funding flow of around 4 million US dollars that will go towards the 
um, the achievement of the conservation commitments, as well as 24 million US dollars, which is expected to grow to 90 million dollars over the next 20 years of an endowment. And that's really important in terms of the long term sustainability of these projects, because once that annual funding flow ends at the end of the debt refinancing period, we then have an endowment that will hope continue to um, finance ocean conservation and other efforts in, in Belize. One last thing I say, uh, I'd say is, Anna mentioned lesson learning, and that's incredibly important. So we have now tested this approach in, in, in three countries. We've scaled it quite significantly. And so our next step now is to actually move from blue bonds to an expanded approach called nature bonds, where we are looking to use this approach for ocean, terrestrial, freshwater outcomes, and also for projects that might be more climate heavy. Of course, as we've mentioned, all of this is interlinked and conservation in the ocean also delivers significant climate mitigation and adaptation benefits. But by going to this broader approach of nature bonds, we're really hoping to apply the approach more broadly across a whole range of different ecosystems and sets of outcomes. So uh, Andreas and Anna, you both um, described these swaps as triple threats um, in that they supported um, low income countries fiscally um, and could achieve both biodiversity and climate outcomes. Um, are they a silver bullet to our kind of problems these days, um, you know, post-COVID uh, with the climate and biodiversity crisis? Or are there issues in, in kind of scaling um, these up and, and really moving the dial on the financing gaps the um, and and you know, the fiscal um, issues uh, low-income countries face? Yeah, for me, if anyone is coming to me with a mechanism and saying that it's going to solve everything, I kind of get a, re a reaction to it, right? Because every all these challenges, though they're the same, you can title them the biodiversity um, crises or the climate crises or the debt crises, they're very, very context-dependent. And I think that we'll need solutions and mechanisms that are adapted to the context where these crises are having impacts and where they will continue to have impacts. Um, I think specifically speaking to debt for nature and climate swaps, and hopefully Andres can come and build on um, this, but they right now are seen as kind of a, a, a smaller boutique approach. And I, I think although they do have the potential to really be scaled up, now it's a matter of kind of going forward with that and what that would look like. Um, I think that questions around debt are can be tricky or they could be sensitive. Um, there's some key creditors that we need to get on board for them to be really scaled up. So um, China as a, as a creditor of sovereign debt to many countries is, will be a key in terms of if you wanted to do widespread debt restructuring. Um, we're seeing increasing amounts of private of, of debt that's held by the private sector, so that will also be key um, in terms of scaling up debt for nature and climate swaps. Yes, it's a it's a really good question, and I think you know 
we think that these approaches are scalable. I think the Belize transaction is, is of a significant scale. For instance, the Barbados one was also working with 150 million US dollars worth of debt, creating around 50 million US dollars worth of fiscal space um, over the course of the project. But these are there are no silver bullets. A very, very similar reaction to to Anna when it comes to someone telling me this is the only thing you need to do. No, these are hugely complicated crises, and essentially we need to change the whole system, all of the finance flows, into a space where they contribute to solving the biodiversity climate crises, and that involves also looking at transactions and debt projects and making sure that they take into account climate and biodiversity outcomes when when they're being put together. So this is absolutely part of the toolbox and the toolbox needs to be a whole lot bigger. These projects work in certain contexts, they don't work everywhere. Um, and so no, it's not a silver bullet. I think it's a really important tool that sits alongside a whole range of other tools and we might be getting to some of them. For instance, we've also done reef insurance, uh, which looks at how you can bring in the insurance market in some of this and really value the benefits that nature brings to local communities by holding that value and, and insuring it against the increasingly um, frequent extreme weather events that we're seeing as a, as a consequence of climate change. Yeah, and um, yeah, so um... Speaking of the, the range of tools um, that we need to be using, um, Anna, um, IAD has been working on this, this idea of biocredits. Um, can you please describe to our listeners what are biocredits, how they work, and how do they differ or complement other types of environmental credits? Yeah, thanks for the question. So... Um, a biodiversity credit, there are also a few different names, nature certificates, nature credits, the list is growing every day. Um, but pretty much what they are is they're a coherent unit of biodiversity that you measure um, usually on a spatial scale. So it would be like one hectare of land. And then um, also in the measurement, you kind of can collate a series of biodiversity indicators. So some examples would be um, how many animals are in the area, the plant diversity, the insect diversity. Um, and then once you get all those measurements, then you take your indicators and you index them into one um, number that represents biodiversity in, um, in your unit. In terms of the application of biodiversity, we're seeing it in a few ways. So they can be, or, sorry, the application of biodiversity credits Sometimes the biodiversity credits, they have to, the index actually has to increase to show restoration of biodiversity. Um, they can also be used for conservation. Um, so that means that the biodiversity measure just has to stay the same, um, of course, accounting for seasonal and annual variation. Um, but then once you have your measurement of biodiversity, then that unit can be bought and sold um, in a similar way that a carbon credit has the carbon credit market has worked. One thing that we argue for um, at IIED is that these biodiversity credits should not be used for offsetting. 
So that means that they should represent a purely positive investment in biodiversity and they should not be accounting for or justifying damage done elsewhere. Um, I think just to say that there's reasonable excitement around biodiversity credits and it's a really exciting market, but there's a lot of questions around this mechanism. For example, um, questions on if they're not using, if they're not being used as an offset, how can companies claim them? Um, questions on incorporating indigenous knowledge into the into the measurements of biodiversity, um, ensuring that they can really generate money for Indigenous peoples and local communities is a question that we're looking at at, at IID. Um, and there's also questions around the technology that you can use um, to support them. So interestingly enough, this is a, a, a space where the fintech community meets conservationists. Um, so I think that it's a, a really interesting space. Thanks for that, Anna. Um, uh, so Andreas, um, the, the Nature Conservancy designs and implements uh, conservation projects on the ground all over the world. How do we ensure, um, as Anna um, has, has mentioned, that we give Indigenous and local communities a fair stake um, in the design and implementation and the revenues generated by some of these um, schemes such as biocredits? That's a really good question and I think it's really garnered a lot more uh, attention in the last few years and that's that's critical. It was a key piece of the global biodiversity framework discussions in Montreal where we also saw some really positive announcements around uh, Indigenous-led conservation including from, from Canada. And I think this is all about participation and, and giving uh, those communities power in decision making and so for instance when I was talking about our blue bonds projects the conservation is done through a marine spatial planning process which includes all stakeholders in the decision making in the design of of how those conservation commitments are then being implemented on the ground um, and we really need these kind of safeguards frameworks which are also increasingly coming in to make sure that when conservation projects are being carried out, they're really for nature and people. Um, you know, there were definitely instances in the past where the conservation movement looked more at impacts on nature and didn't recognize that there were already communities and people in place who had taken care of the ocean and the land for decades and centuries, millennia. And that is something that I still think is something everyone is getting better at. Um, I don't think it would be appropriate to say that we've fully cracked that nut, um, but it's um, definitely an area where we need to continue learning and being quite humble about, about the learning. Um, and I think we've seen some really positive developments and fundamentally it is about actually including and letting people and communities who live on, from, uh, and close to these areas lead um, the conservation that, that is being undertaken. Andreas, what are emerging innovations in biodiversity financing and is there anything you're particularly excited about that can meaningfully turn the dial on, on scaling to the, 
the level of financing we need? It's a great question. I might give you a bit of a, a potpourri of an answer. As we've discussed previously, I don't think there are silver bullets. I'm a bit hesitant to say this is this is the one thing. Um, obviously, we've mentioned debt for nature swaps or kind of nature bonds. I do think they are a really important part of the toolkit, particularly in certain contexts where there are issues around fiscal space. Um, I also mentioned reef insurance, which we didn't get into in much detail, but I'm quite excited about that as an innovation because it really shows that nature has real value and puts actual financial resources towards protecting that value and recognizes that it's worth protecting. So I'm, I'm excited about what that tells us about how the insurance industry and, and investors are looking at nature as, some, as something that is, is, is to be protected and has value in and of itself. And I'm also quite excited about the idea of looking at biodiversity add-ons to cre credit mechanisms we already have. So TNC has been working on um, blue carbon resilience credits, which are looking at essentially adding resilience and biodiversity aspects onto sequestration credits and benefits. And we're testing that approach in, in a TNC coastal reserve in, in Virginia. So I'll maybe stop with those three. There are a whole host more that we uh, could talk about. And I really want to emphasize this point that we really need all of the solutions. There are lots of them out there. There's no single one that will be the answer to all of this. The whole system needs to change in all of its many parts. And so any solution that is part of that is a great one. And Anna, is there any uh, innovations in the biodiversity financing space that you're uh, particularly excited about? So that's that's a great question. And I think I would agree with Andres in the fact that I, I don't think that we should look to one innovative um, finance mechanism as the silver bullet. Um, I work on debt for nature and biodiversity credit, so to me, the, I'm, I'm biased for sure, but those are very exciting. And I think that there's there's a lot of energy around innovation and in, innovative finance mechanisms for debt, biodiversity. And also, as Andres mentioned, it's it really refreshing um, to see that Indigenous peoples' voices and local communities' voices are being considered um, more deeply and we are learning from past mechanisms that we've employed and how we're looking at how we can adjust, how we can add social elements to um, these mechanisms that have traditionally worked only for biodiversity and left behind the people. So um, yeah, I, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't point to one, one silver bullet, but I think that there's a lot um, a lot of energy around innovative finance mechanisms and the more that we have in our toolbox, um, the better. Thank you um, both so much for for joining me. That was a, a really um, interesting and exciting uh, discussion about, uh, I think, an area that's only going to get more um, important and critical um, as, as, the, um, as the years go on. Um, and while the challenge does seem immense, um, I think the work you're both doing at IIED and um, the Nature Conservancy is um, really interesting. Um, so thank you again both for joining us and, um, yeah, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be part of the conversation. 
Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Oxford Policy Pod, where we try to take a high level look at the role and application of financing and biodiversity conservation. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our recent episode where we have interviewed former Colombian Ivan Duque about governing during a pandemic and looked into how the Vatican is influencing policymaking in ecology and peace building. You can also follow us on Instagram at OxfordPolicyPod underscore. This episode was produced by Vitor Tomas and Annalise Escobar and edited by Paul Austin. Our thanks to Anna Ducroix and Andreas Hansen. I'm your host, Chirag Shah, and we hope to see you again for our next episode on the Oxford Policy Pod.